Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series. We're continuing in Out of Bondage into Abundance, and we are coming toward the end of part six, uh, part six of seven parts. And as I always mention, I'll repeat again tonight for those that might be new, uh, the notes, outline notes, and recordings for all of the previous studies are available at our website, and that's new-life-ministries.org. Uh, you can download uh, all of the materials there, and if you are following along in the notes tonight, we are on page 141 of the outline. You know, I was thinking tonight, what a blessing that we can just log on to our phone or our computer and we're all together to encourage one another, to share together in the scriptures, to pray. Uh, in the first century, they had to get on a boat and often spend months and months risking life and limb just to get to a certain city to have a prayer meeting, to have a little bit of time to encourage the disciples in that particular place. We are so blessed today with the technology and the abilities that God's given to us, and we want to continue to make use of every resource that God gives to us to encourage one another, build one another up, get ready for the coming of the Lord, because time is short, these are the last days, and these are exciting days for us to be Christians. All right, we are looking at the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, out of slavery, and moving into the promised land, a land that God promised them as part of their inheritance. And the section we are in now is entitled Conquering Seven Nations. And in that promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, God had forewarned them that when they got in there, they were going to encounter seven nations, not one or two, seven nations that were greater and more powerful than they were, evil, wicked, sinful, perverse nations. And God told the Israelites, you're going to need to dislodge them, drive them all out, annihilate them, don't make any treaties with them, don't make any agreements with them. You're going to take over their land and their territory. And, of course, God assured them he would go ahead of them, he would defeat these enemies and all the giants and help them to drive out these enemies. But it's a beautiful picture for us of the spiritual life. Jesus sets us free from slavery, the bondage of sin, and he promises us an abundant life. He promises us an inheritance in heaven. There's a small problem, though. The New Testament also forewarns us that there are enemies, not in hell, not just here on earth, but in heavenly places. And the book of Ephesians especially explains this to us, that we must put on the whole armor of God be ready for spiritual warfare, because our warfare is not really with flesh and blood. It's not with people. It's not with earthly things. It's not with 
the material realm in which we live. Our real battle is with powers, principalities, rulers of darkness and wickedness in heavenly places. And God has given us mighty weapons, powerful, strong armament and weapons to pull down every stronghold, to defeat and dislodge all of those enemies so that we can ultimately enter into heaven and take hold of our heavenly inheritance. So, that being said, we've come now to the seventh and final nation that the Israelites had to overcome, dislodge, and drive out of Canaan, the Jebusites. We've already seen that their name is highly significant. Jebusite literally means trodden down. They would trample underfoot or tread down the Israelites if they had the opportunity. And we've taken the Jebusites to represent a spirit of discouragement or depression, something that comes to knock us down, to depress us, to trample us into the ground. And the picture of this seventh and final nation, I think, is very, very clear, and it has amazing implications for us as Christians. The Jebusites were the final, the last stronghold to be broken. It was only in the time of King David that the Jebusites were finally defeated, and it's very significant where they lived. They were living in Jerusalem. David had to conquer the Jebusites in order to establish his kingdom in what we now call Jerusalem and Zion. And the the spiritual picture here is amazing. When David went in to drive out the Jebusites, they said to him, you will not get in here, you cannot get in here. That's the very voice of this spirit. You will not, you cannot. You can't defeat us, you can't come in here, you will never overcome. And we looked at the whole picture of David conquering these Jebusites and establishing his kingdom in the very place where they had lived for many, many years. Now, we are looking at ways to overcome this spirit. We're not battling with Jebusites, but believe you me, every Christian, sooner or later, has to learn how to overcome discouragement and depression. Because this spirit will come and begin whispering in your ear and say, you're never going to get healed. You're never going to be spiritual. You're never going to overcome this bad habit or that sin. You can't. You're no good. You're too weak. And on and on the spirit goes uh, hounding us, this discouraging, depressing spirit that robs us of our hope, our joy, and our faith. I want to just begin with two key words 
We've already looked at part of this, but two key words that are involved in overcoming discouragement and depression. The two words are hope and encouragement. Hope and encouragement. Encouragement, of course, is the opposite of discouragement. And we've already looked at the first and very important step toward overcoming discouragement and depression. We must fill ourselves with hope. And we looked very carefully at that. We don't get our hope from circumstances or from the world. We get our hope from God. He's called the God of hope. And the Holy Spirit wants to come and fill us so that we will abound in hope. We're told to put on like a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's to protect the brain, protect the mind, protect our thoughts. If you're not filling your mind with hopeful thoughts based on God's word and God's promises, something else is going to come and fill that void. Negative thoughts, thoughts of depression, discouragement, hopelessness, I'm no good, I can't. I'll never succeed. I'll never prosper. So the first thing we looked at is the need for us to abound in hope. Fill your life with hope. Read testimonies of other Christians who have experienced God in their lives. They've seen victories. They've seen the power of God. That encourages us. Secondly, the Jebusites lived in Jerusalem. That was to become the city of David, and more importantly, the city of God. And just as there was an earthly Jerusalem over in Israel, the scriptures are very clear that there is a heavenly Jerusalem. And we looked at numerous passages last week, including the last two chapters of the Bible. Uh, Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is a clear picture of the new Jerusalem, which is the inheritance for the overcomer. We saw in Hebrews, we have already come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So if we're going to overcome discouragement, discouraging thoughts, feelings of hopelessness, we must have a heavenly vision, a vision of the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly city, where it is that God is preparing to take us. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. That often happens to us, but we shouldn't let it happen. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you unto myself so that you can be where I am. Well, we saw last week where he is. He's in New Jerusalem. So that is meant to give us encouragement. When we're going through tough times, remember, I'm going to the New Jerusalem. I'm going to the city of God. Jesus has gone to prepare that place for me. He will come again soon and take me there to be with him 
for all of eternity. All right, we want to move on tonight to the third point. And again, if you're following in the outline, this is uh, on page 141. The word David in Hebrew literally means love or loving. And I don't think it's any coincidence that it wasn't Joshua, it was only David who was able to defeat these Jebusites. We must love the Lord with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength if we're going to be able to overcome all of our enemies, including this last and possibly strongest one, this spirit of depression, despair, and discouragement. David was able to conquer the Jebusites. Love is able to overcome. In Revelation 2, verses 1 to 5, the first of the seven messages to churches, we have the message to the Ephesian church. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 5, and I happen to be reading from the New King James Version here. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Now let's pause for a minute. We're not done yet. But I just want to encourage all of us on the phone tonight. Jesus knows what we're doing. He sees our labors. He sees our hard work. He knows what we're doing. Sometimes nobody else notices, but one thing that you learn in these messages to the different churches, Jesus was very much aware of both the good things they were doing and occasionally he had to point out their mistakes, their weaknesses, or their failings. Such was the case with the Ephesians. They had a lot of good stuff. He knew their works, their labor, their patience. They had discernment. They couldn't bear evil. They had no tolerance for sin and evil. They had a zeal for God. And they were even able to test and discern false apostles, false leaders who may have tried to infiltrate their church. They had perseverance. They had patience. And again, in verse 3, he ends by saying, You have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you. He just had one thing to point out for them. After that long list of good works that they were doing, he says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place 
unless you repent. I think there are a lot of different possible meanings to this having left their first love, but I don't think it's rocket science. When you first get saved, you're in first love with Jesus. You love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. He has done such an amazing thing in your life in saving you from sin and hell, setting you free from all your bondages, that you're just in love with God. And we love God first. That's one type of first love, where we're loving Him first and above everything else. And so the Ephesians had somehow slipped away from that first love, loving God first and loving Him the way they did at the first. I think both meanings are equally applicable. In in any case, we must be careful not to lose that first love, not to leave that first love. Matter of fact, I think we should strive to be loving Him more than we did at the first. Making even greater effort now to put God first in our life. And if you examine your own experience, I think you'll be able to trace that when you start to get discouraged, you start to feel a little bit down and depressed, somewhere along the line, you have allowed God to slip from that first place maybe the second, third, fourth, or tenth place, and other things have crept in to take his place. And as soon as you repent and put God first again, and I also like what Jesus says here, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Remember how you were, when you first got saved, how you loved God's Word, how you wanted to pray, how you wanted to witness and tell others about Jesus. Those are the first works. And it's as simple as repenting and doing those first works again. Loving God passionately, loving His Word, loving prayer, loving souls, putting God's work first ahead of everything else. You know, Peter, I was preaching on him Sunday, um, how discouraged he must have become after he failed the Lord. Jesus even prophesied to him, you're going to disown me three times this very night. I mean, if somebody prophesied over you and said, be careful, this very night you're going to deny Christ three times, wouldn't you be on your guard? I think so. And even with that, Peter did exactly what Jesus predicted. He disowned him. That's a strong word. He literally swore and called down curses on himself. 
I don't know this man. I've never been with him. I don't know what you're talking about. I have nothing to do with this Jesus. I'm not one of his followers. I'm not one of his disciples. I don't even know the man. That's pretty serious. And the scriptures tell us that after the cock crowed, and Luke's gospel adds one very important detail, Jesus looked at him. Somehow, their eyes met after that third denial. Not a word, just the eyes piercing through Peter's heart. The Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. Can you imagine the feelings of failure, discouragement? Man, I really blew it now. And I think you can make a case that Peter even felt like he had been disqualified from his apostleship, from even being a disciple of Christ. But you know, in John 21, after the resurrection, after Jesus appeared to Peter and all the other disciples, we find that Jesus only had one question on his heart for Peter. It wasn't, man, why did you deny me? What happened, Peter? How did you disown me three times? None of that. The only question Jesus had for Peter, not once, not twice, but three times, three for each one of the three times he had disowned Christ, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And I think God comes regularly in each one of our lives. And maybe you and I have messed up. Maybe we've made mistakes. Maybe we failed the Lord. I find he doesn't usually come with a long list of scoldings and why did you do this and what's wrong with you and how come you said that. I just find he comes in that same gentle way and whispers, do you love me? I've proven my love for you. Now all I want is for you to respond. Do you love me? Well, then go feed my lambs, go feed my sheep, follow me. So, much more could be said about this. You know, Jesus said on these two commandments, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You can basically summarize the whole Bible in one word. It's love. Love God and love other people. And that's a sure way to overcome this Jebusite spirit. David conquered the Jebusites. Love is what can conquer them. Perfect love, we're told, drives out all fear. Fear is a relative of discouragement. And so I think you could equally say the love of God, when it's shed abroad in our hearts, it makes discouragement flee away. When you realize you're loved by the creator of the universe, you're loved in such a way you were worth so much to him that he paid the ultimate price with his own blood on Calvary. That's how much he valued you and me. When you feel loved, it's hard to get discouraged.
doesn't matter if everything around you is going wrong, as long as you feel loved by God, that's victory in itself. So love is one of the keys to overcoming discouragement. I want to move on, though, to point four. This is a big one, and we're probably going to add some other scriptures here that aren't found in the outline. But the fourth point here is to encourage one another, and a very important word, daily. Encourage one another daily. And we'll read that first verse, and then I want to comment a little bit bit more about this heading. Hebrews 3, verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know, every word of God is pure, and every word of God is inspired. And we need to train ourselves as we read the scriptures and as we study our Bibles. Sometimes go over these verses slowly and look at each and every word because every word is significant. There's a very significant word that we just read here, and it's the word daily. And I don't know if you've thought about that much, but I have. Encourage one another daily. Now, just stop for a minute and think about that. If we need to be encouraging one another daily, then it must mean that it's highly likely that we're under attack daily from the Jebusite spirit that wants to discourage us. And I don't know about you, but it, it just seems every single day something comes along to try to knock you down, try to make you feel discouraged, try to make you look at your circumstances and say, they're not getting better, they're getting worse. I've been praying for my unsaved son or uh, in-laws for 40 years, and they're getting worse, they're not getting better. We're all in the same boat. We're all facing, apparently from this scripture, a daily attack of discouragement. So, what are we told to do? Encourage one another. Not just every Sunday. That's great. You know, when we see each other on Sunday, we hug one another and say, Praise the Lord, brother. Good to see you. How you doing? Been praying for you. That's great. But what about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? That's six other days that that brother or sister was likely under attack with some kind of discouraging voice. You can't, you won't, you'll never succeed, you're no good, da-da-da-da-da. Therefore, we are enjoined here by God, encourage each other every day. It's something we must proactively do. Look for opportunities. Invent opportunities to call someone, go visit someone, and encourage them. And we'll see in the next verse, sometimes encouragement doesn't even require words. 
just our physical presence and just our works and lifestyle can be a source of encouragement and inspiration to other believers. Look in Hebrews further along, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now I know this is a famous verse that pastors use to beat people over the head to try to get them to come to church. And it's unfortunate that it's sometimes used in that way, but this is a very powerful passage that we need to understand. Look at what the Apostle is saying. Each one of us should consider. That means give it some thought. This isn't something you do on the spur of the moment. Think about it. Have a plan. Consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That may be through words. It may also be through actions. Maybe my actions can spur someone else on to follow what I'm doing. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And yes, it is important when we have public gatherings, whether it's on Friday night in our case for prayer, or Sunday meeting together uh, in church, or meeting together as we are right now on the phone or the internet. That's also a way of meeting together. He says, not giving up those times of meeting together. So when the church agrees to meet together, whether it's to pray on the phone, pray in somebody's house, or meet together at the church facility to sing and worship and testify and preach the word, those times should be honored by all. And it says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You know, habits are very important. Bad habits are hard to break, but so are good ones. Once you establish a good habit, it's easy to keep doing it. Get into the habit of prayer. Get into the habit of reading God's Word. Get into the habit of fasting. Get into the habit of meeting with the other brethren for prayer, for Bible study, for worship. Why? Here's the clincher. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but why do we come together? To encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, there's a very wrong mindset that I find many Christians have. 
Christians that I meet and, and talk to. They have this kind of a mindset that going to church is a little bit like going to the grocery store to shop for your groceries. If you don't like what the store is selling, then you shop around and look for another grocery store. And if you don't like what's being served in that particular store, you find another one. Or um, some have likened it to going to one of these salad bars where you have, you know, the different kinds of lettuce and carrots and cheese and olives and all the different things. And you can pick what you like and leave the rest. And if you really don't like the salad bar, you don't come back there anymore. You go shopping around looking for a new salad bar. And sadly, that's the mindset a lot of Christians have about churches. Well, I'll try that church down on the corner this week, and if I don't feel happy and entertained and wowed by the music and the worship and the preacher, I'll keep shopping around till I find a good church. That is not at all biblical. First of all, we've studied this before in 1 Corinthians 12. We don't pick and choose where God plants us. The Spirit of God sets us in the body of Christ where He wants us to be. And we're not just going there to pick and choose what we want to put on our plate from the salad bar, we are coming together to encourage one another. That's why we were recently looking in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul, in one of the few places in the New Testament, actually gives us some insight into what was happening in their early church services in the first century. And he says, when you come together, every one of you should be bringing something to the table. Not how, how much can I get from this service, but one brings a prophecy, another brings a hymn, another comes with a testimony, another brings a word. Everybody comes to contribute. And so really, when we come together as a church, we should come expecting to be used by God to encourage others in the church. Maybe you'll have a word of encouragement for a brother or a sister who's going through a difficult time. Maybe God will give you a prophetic utterance for the whole church. Maybe God will have you go over and pray with a brother or a sister. But listen to this very carefully. This is why the church meets together, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. As we're getting closer to the coming of the Lord, we've talked about this a lot, times are going to get darker, more demonic, more antichrist. That's biblical. These last days are going to be terribly dark times. So, the greater the darkness that's coming upon the world, the more we need to be encouraging one another. Encouraging one another daily and stepping up that encouragement as we're drawing near to the coming of 
the Lord. If you read through the book of Acts, and we don't have time to look at all the references, they're not in the outline, but I can mention a few of the references here. Acts 11.23, Acts 16.40, Acts 28.15, and many others like them. The apostles in the early church, one of the main things they were doing as they traveled around from city to city and they went from church to church was to encourage the brethren in that particular place. It's a, it's a key element of the ministry, just encouraging each other. And you don't have to be an apostle to encourage someone. We can all do that. And all of us, we may not uh, show it, but all of us need encouragement. Okay, let's look at some other verses. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 18, speaking about the soon coming of the Lord. Paul says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. We refer to that as the rapture. We often leave off the next verse, though. Verse 18 is key. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. You see, the, the truth of the rapture, the hope, of the coming of Christ is not just something we should be hearing from the pulpit, from the pastor. Every one of us should be encouraging each other. Praise the Lord, brother. Chin up. Jesus is coming soon. Lift up your heads. Your redemption's drawing near. Come on. Be encouraged. Jesus is coming back soon. That's what Paul is saying. Every believer, we should all be encouraging each other regularly with this fact that Jesus will be coming back. Same letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 10 and 11. He, that's Christ, died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. And many other places we could cite in the New Testament where Christians are told to encourage one another. This is not in the notes, but in Romans 1, verses 11 and 12, even Paul, great apostle that he was, he was looking forward to coming to Rome and spending time with the believers there, and he says, we will be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. It's very interesting. Mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul was going to be encouraged by their faith. They were going to be encouraged by Paul's faith. And they were going to be encouraged by each other's faith. Don't ever underestimate the power of encouragement. Just a word 
maybe a hug, a handshake, a prayer. People need encouragement. And in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, he encourages every believer to seek after gifts of the Holy Spirit. Be a vessel that the Holy Spirit can use. We should regularly have prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, other manifestations of the gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever we come together because God designed them to bring encouragement and to bring edification into the church. Specifically, prophecy, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, is to encourage the other members of the church. Prophecy brings encouragement. Okay, so I think we get the point. One way to defeat discouragement is if we all will do what the Word of God is telling us to do and encourage one another daily, regularly, more and more as we get closer to the coming of the Lord. It'll counteract the effects of that Jebusite spirit that tries to tread us down, make us feel low, depressed, good-for-nothing, defeated, I'm a failure, I'm always going to be a failure, encourage one another. I want to move on to point five, and this is probably as far as we'll get in our session tonight. Point five is also about encouragement, but this one's different. Point five is encourage yourself in the Lord. Now, it's wonderful when a brother or a sister pats you on the back, says, good job, brother, I really enjoyed that, be encouraged. It's nice when somebody encourages us. But the reality is there are times in our lives where we find ourselves all alone in a dark cave. We find ourselves facing very depressing circumstances, and there's no one around to encourage us. Such was the case with none other than King David, the one who overcame the Jebusites. David had his share of discouragements, and that is reflected in many of his songs that are recorded for us in the Psalms. He went through persecution, rejection, hatred, all kinds of terrible dark times. And he didn't just find himself in spiritual caves. He spent many a night in a cave running from Saul and his, his persecutors, literally hiding out in caves to save his life. And in 1 Samuel 30... David had one of the lowest points in his life. You can read about it there, 1 Samuel 30. His wives and children and the wives and children of many of his fighting men were all kidnapped by the enemy when he was away from the city of Ziklag. When they came back to Ziklag, 
The enemy had burned the city to the ground, and all of their wives and children were missing. They had been taken away, kidnapped. They didn't even know if they were dead or alive. And everybody was so distressed and angry and discouraged and upset. It says in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, and I'm going to read it from the Amplified Version. It says, David was greatly distressed for the men, that's his own men, spoke of stoning him. I mean, just when you think it can't get any worse, sometimes it does. Not only has he lost his wife, his kids, and the city's been burned to the ground, but now his own men are turning on him. We need to stone this guy, David. Look at the trouble he's brought on us. David was greatly distressed, for the men spoke of stoning him, because the souls of them were all bitterly grieved, each man for his sons and daughters. But David encouraged and strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Man, oh man, if you and I can get a hold of that, we will go places. If we can learn how to do what David did, I'm talking about this is a real bad situation David's in, and somehow he got encouraged. Somehow he was strengthened in that miserable situation. No one encouraged him. No one was there to pat him on the back. They were all ready to stone him. David had learned a secret. He had learned how to encourage himself. We must learn how to do that. Encourage yourself in the Lord. And I believe the best way to do that is through the scriptures. In particular, through the promises that God has given us in the scriptures. And there's an important passage that didn't make it into the outline, but I want to read it for us tonight because I think it's, it shows both of these aspects of the source of our encouragement is the Scriptures. Romans chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Romans 15, 4 and 5. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So, the scriptures are a source of hope, strength, and encouragement. So, when we find ourselves down, discouraged, facing what seems to be a hopeless situation, it's time, if you have the opportunity, to get your Bible out 
and start looking at some of God's promises. Better still, you may not even have the opportunity to look for your Bible. That's why we need to hide God's Word in our hearts. Memorize. Memorize the Scriptures. Get a hold of some important promises from the Scriptures, particularly promises that address your situation. For instance, if you're battling sickness or infirmity, memorize five or ten of the healing promises in Scripture. By His stripes I was healed. God sent His Word and He healed them. And as we've often taught, confess them out loud. And in so doing, you're encouraging yourself in the Lord. As you quote and confess, declare your belief in those promises, you'll find that encouragement and hope and strength starts to come into your heart. Also, not found in the outline, but very important portion of Scripture, is found in Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm going to read from verse 12 down to verse 18. It says, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So we're talking about the promises of God. Verse 13, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, we're still talking about his promises, he confirmed it with an oath. So we have not only God's promise, but he now swears by an oath that he will not break those promises. Why did God do this? Verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us, may be, here it is, greatly encouraged. God wants us to find great encouragement through His promises. All of the promises of God are yes. He confirmed them with an oath. He cannot go back on those promises. They're unchangeable. He can't change his mind about anything that he's promised. So, when we're facing a negative, dark, seemingly hopeless situation, that's when we need 
the promises of God. And we need to remind ourselves these are all yes, they're all unchangeable. God swore them with an oath. He will not reverse. He will not change his mind. Therefore, I can confess these out loud just as if it is done and over. That's why it says all of the promises of God are yes, and our response is amen. So be it. It is done. And you should pick at least five or ten key promises from God's Word and commit them to memory. Write them on cards or whatever you need to do. Go over them and over them and over them until they become a part of you. And you'll notice in Matthew 4, when Jesus faced the temptations of the devil in the wilderness, I don't think Jesus had time to pull out a scroll or look for a concordance to try to remember where those verses were. He had them in his heart. He had memorized those scriptures. That's why he was able to come right back and say, Satan, it is written. Don't tempt the Lord your God. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written. And likewise, when you and I are tempted, when we're under attack, when we're having a bad day, we should be armed and ready to come back and say, It is written. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. It's God's word. It's his promise. I can stand on this. Not, I can't do. It says, I can do all things. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Lord, I thank you that you always cause me to triumph in Christ. I'm not going to be defeated by this situation. I'm going to find victory. You're going to lead me into triumph. 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, the, the Jebusite spirit, if you don't know the scriptures... He'll try to whisper in your ear and make his way into your heart and say, God's not for you. God's always been against you. Just look at your life. He's always crushing you and smashing you because he doesn't like you. God doesn't love you like other people. He's against you. He's always been against you. No. Scripture says God is for us. And if God is for us, and he proved that on Calvary, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, A-L-L, -L, for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all, A-L-L, -L, things? 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, I'm inserting this. Satan will try. He's the accuser of the brethren. He'll try to condemn you. He'll try to tell you, oh, you're no good. God's never going to restore you. God's never going to forgive you for what you did. You might as well forget it. Stop trying to be a Christian. No. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, it is God who justifies you. Who is he who condemns? Well, Satan. It's not God. Because it is Christ who died. Furthermore, who is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. It doesn't make any sense. Why would Christ die on the cross for you, shed his blood for you, go into hell for you, rise on the third day, ascend back to the right hand of the Father. He's been there continuously ever since, praying for you, interceding for you. What is he going to do? Take a break in between prayers and intercessions and curse you and condemn you? Makes no sense. It is Christ who died, who is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? These are all things that can potentially discourage us. Okay? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. They're all very discouraging things. However, as it is written... For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, nevertheless, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This fifth step is extremely critical. You and I need to get a hold of this, and we need to master this. Learn how to encourage yourself in the Lord. And people might think you're losing your mind, but it's okay to talk to yourself. King David often spoke to himself. He said, come on, soul. Get it together. Get up. Praise the Lord. And sometimes we need to talk to our soul and say, all right, that's enough pity party, enough discouragement. Get up now. We're going to praise the Lord. We're going to read the word. We're going to start confessing what God's promises say about my situation. I am more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. I will overcome whatever this enemy is that I'm presently facing. I will be healed by the stripes of Jesus because he promised it and he paid for it on Calvary. And like that, the better you know the promises of God, the 
better equipped you are to encourage yourself. We can't wait until we're in the trial or the cave or the battle. That's why now we must be proactive. Learn the promises. Memorize these scriptures. Be ready to quote them out loud for the devil to hear you, and yes, even for other people to hear you. Greater is he that is in me than, it, than he that is in the world. Jesus is coming soon. And you go on and on, and before you know it, you start to feel happy inside, and you're encouraged, not because your circumstances changed. They will. They will ultimately have to change. But because you've been encouraged in the Lord, David encouraged and strengthened himself in the Lord his God. May God help us to encourage one another daily and to learn how to encourage ourselves in the Lord. We'll stop there, and hopefully next time we're going to finish with these Jebusites, finish with the seven nations, and prepare to enter into the seventh and last part of this whole series, Possess the Promised Land. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you are the ultimate source of hope and encouragement for each one of us. Obviously, you knew that we were going to face discouragement, perhaps even on a daily basis. You said sufficient for the day are its evils. Every day seems to bring some evil, some discouragement. And that's why we must be proactive, encourage one another daily, and to encourage ourselves in the Lord. God, I pray that each one of us might learn, might memorize your exceeding great, precious, powerful promises. All of them are yes, and we say amen to every one of them, knowing that you're a God who cannot lie. It's impossible for you to change your mind about what you've already promised and sworn to with an oath. Lord, help us all to be strengthened and encouraged in those promises that our faith in your word would grow. We would go from faith to faith. We would go from strength to strength as we draw nearer and nearer to that great day when Jesus returns for his church, for his bride. Until then, keep each one of us encouraged, keep us strong, keep us pressing on to that final day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.